the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 16 uh, makes a statement about the judicial process of Israel. And of course, as a, uh, a, a nation that is founded upon Judeo-Christian judicial principles, we can fully appreciate this. Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20 says this, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. That's a good start. That's a great principle of justice. And that's one reason why you are constantly frustrated. Because it seems like you're just... uh, view or hear about or read about just a constant injustice in our culture and in other cultures today where justice has been perverted well today as we look at mark chapter 14 in the trial of jesus we're going to see perhaps one of the greatest perversions of justice of all time from the very nation that actually had that principle in deuteronomy chapter 16 We're going to see the only perfect man that ever lived found guilty and sentenced to death in a kangaroo court. And Jesus is going to suffer the humiliation of a criminal when he, in fact, is the Son of God. The sad thing about the justice that we're going to see, or the lack of justice that we're going to see in the trial of Jesus, is that the the outcome was already predetermined. Uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, had already publicly uh, proclaimed in John chapter 11 that it was expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. They had intended to kill Jesus all along. They'd just been looking for an opportunity. And the fact that that opportunity came at a time when they were not even allowed to meet as a court really didn't have anything to do with their agenda as we'll see it. So today, as we look at the trial of Jesus, we're going to see the injustice of the Sanhedrin, but also on a more personal level, and many of you experience, have experienced injustice on a more personal level, we're going to see the injustice of the Apostle Peter. Jesus is, in a sense, best friend on planet Earth as he denies him and turns his back on his friend in his time of need. So in the trial of Jesus, we're not only going to see the trial of Jesus, we're going to see the trial of the Sanhedrin and the trial that is uh, experienced and failed in by the Apostle Peter. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in faith we turn to this, uh, this perhaps one of the darkest nights in human history as we see the Son of God uh, betrayed and the Son of God found guilty of evil before an evil court. And I pray, God, that as we look at the injustice that Jesus Christ suffered, I pray, God, that you would help us to do what we can to provide justice for others and also to seek the justice of God alone. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The great commentator Oswald Chambers says, Never look for justice in this world, but never cease to give it. And while we are constantly vexed by the injustice that we see, we do have a responsibility to give justice. So let us go to school on the Sanhedrin and Peter and the injustice they did Jesus and make sure that we do not fall into the same error. We're going to look at uh, really five different portions. This is a rather lengthy uh, piece of narrative, but as it's narrative, I think it will go uh, fairly quickly. We're going to look at Mark chapter 14. 
verses 53 through 72 this morning. Your home group's helps insert might help you. You have an outline on one side and then some questions that you might be able to use in home groups uh, as we meet this week, but also as family devotion material as you uh, ponder these truths. It's not enough just to leave the sermon on Sunday morning. You want to kind of... kind of reconsider these points as the week goes on. But we're going to see that Peter follows Christ at a distance in verses 53 through 54. The false testimonies in verses 55 through 59. The illegal interrogation in verse 60 through 63. The unwarranted sentence in verse 64 through 65. And Peter denies Christ in verses 66 through 70. Two. So first of all, Peter follows Christ at a distance. You remember the situation. They've had the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper. Uh, they've gone up to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Peter uh, and a uh, few other disciples failed to stay awake and keep watch and pray for Jesus during his time of torment. Uh, as he recognized the fact that he was going to be separated under, uh, uh, between he and the Father. Uh, and Jesus and I mean, Peter fell asleep three different times. Uh, and now he comes and gets arrested by a mob led by Judas who betrays him with a kiss. And things are going to go from bad to worse if you've read ahead and know the story. So now we see here that Peter follows Christ at a distance. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now, some commentators will tell you this, this passage this morning, this rather lengthy passage this morning, is, is what they might call an Apostle Peter sandwich. It starts off with uh, Peter and, uh, and what he's doing, and he's following Jesus at a distance, and then it closes with Peter's denial. And there in between the bread of, uh, of, of the apostle Peter, here we have the, this trial here, and then we're going to get the details of this trial from Mark's account and also from the other uh, gospels here, and we're going to view it in all its illegality and all of its immorality. It's just a wicked, wicked scene, and yet it has the the veneer of justice. It's a kangaroo court that is intended to to give them the excuse they look for to destroy Jesus Christ. So they led him away to the high priest. John chapter 18 identifies the priest as Caiaphas, uh, who was the high priest who presided over the Sanhedrin from A.D. 18 to 36, he was the son-in-law of the powerful high priest Annas, and you would see those go in between the, and basically maintaining the power. In a sense, what had happened here, they'd become a religious gangsters. There was a religious mob was in charge of, uh, of Jerusalem and, uh, and Judea at that time. It says here that all the chief priests and the elders were gathered together. Now, it's interesting, they did not meet in the customary place where they were supposed to gather together, the Hall of Hewn Stone. They met here in the courtyard. Why would they do something like that? Because it's 1 o'clock in the morning. It's 1 o'clock in the morning. I mean, if, if that doesn't tell you that this is a crooked trial, uh, if that doesn't tell you alone, you don't even need more. Uh, material here, but we're going to look at this other material. So they didn't meet in the mark, uh, the the chamber of Hugh Stone. They they're meeting in the in the uh, the house of the high priest here. Uh, it's uh, right over. It's just about a kilometer away from Gethsemane. Uh, the site is commemorated today at the uh, the church of Saint Peter uh, in the Galakuliku or the the crow uh, the cock crow. 
And you can see this, uh, this misconduct of the trial is characterized by several things. According to Jewish law, the Sanhedrin was not permitted to initiate charges. They could only investigate and judge a case. But here they are bringing in charges here. Uh, so they were acting as illegal prosecutors, uh, as we're going to see here. The trial itself was illegal. Uh, it would require 23 members of the Sanhedrin to be gathered. I don't know that there's going to be that many. We know that Nicodemus uh, is not invited to this particular trial, for instance, or Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, so, uh, the, the, uh, and then the other thing they had is they weren't allowed to meet at night. And they were not allowed to meet before a Sabbath. Why? Well, in a capital case, that if they were going to bring a capital sentence upon someone, you had to have another trial the next day to make sure they didn't find this man guilty in haste. Uh, and uh, so they gave some benefit to those people being accused here. So here they are meeting at night on the eve of a Sabbath. The whole thing was illegal from top to bottom here. And then notice here, though, you got this, this uh, commentary here that Peter followed at a distance. Now, this is the Peter, the, 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 the really probably is the bravest of all the apostles who boldly declared that he would die with Christ if necessary. And now he is putting space between himself and Jesus. He is following Jesus at a distance. Now, folks, there's a lot about Peter we want to emulate. There's a lot about Peter we want to be like. This is one of those situations where let's learn from his sin. One of the most vexing things of ministry, one of the things that your officers deal with the most, and if you're an active, dynamic Christian who loves Jesus and, uh, and wants to walk in obedience and wants to see the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to the nations, one of the things that vexes you the most is those Christians who follow Jesus at a distance. They're just the Sunday check-the-box Christians. And they want, they're attracted to Jesus. They may, in fact, even be converted, but they don't want to make Jesus so much a part of their life that it becomes inconvenient for them or becomes awkward for them. I would submit to you that in many ways, that's almost the majority of those who claim to be Jesus, uh, Jesus followers. They just follow him at a distance. They can keep, they can see him, but they're not going to get too close as to be associated with them. Uh, we, of course, recently had our, uh, our General Synod meeting a few weeks ago down in Columbia, and I was talking to some of the pastors and asked them, well, what's the effect of COVID been on your congregation? And, and to a person, they said, there's, there are families we've lost that we have not seen since COVID started. And, uh, and uh, we talked about social media. You know, we were so blessed in this church. Elton Jones had had us completely set up where the, the first Sunday of COVID, when everything shut down in the state of South Carolina, we had live simulcast. It was lonely for me. <laughs> Thank you for Sarah and Jack and Kimry and, uh, and, and Mimi who was here. Uh, but, uh, but, it, but it was an empty space. But we were going live, and many of you were watching those services. And that media ministry has been just extremely profitable and a blessing to our church. We actually have some people here today that came through the media ministry of our church. But there's a downside to it as well. And this is something we grappled with when we thought about going with live simulcast. What if people use the fact that they can watch it in the comfort of their own pajamas, in their den? What's that going to do to people? Is it going to keep them away on Sundays? And you know what? It has. It has. I talked to one pastor of one ARP church who's actually stopped doing live simulcasts on Sundays because he saw so many people from his congregation were following Jesus from a distance. 
Now, that is not to insult or impugn anybody who needs to watch this service, and there are legitimate needs for not being here today. But folks, COVID is, in a sense, long gone in terms of a, if a constant threat. We went to a movie last night. There, was, there wasn't a person in that theater that had a mask on. Now, if you need to keep away from church, that's fine, but you need to be keeping away from movie theaters, soccer games, and the grocery store, and everything else as well. And if you have been keeping away from church, and you're one of these people that's following from a distance, and I'm talking to those of you who are watching the live simulcast, you need to be here next Sunday if you don't have a bona fide medical reason because you are ignoring the fellowship of believers, and it is a sin. And, Jesus, and Peter's sin is deliberately highlighted here in this situation. So you judge yourselves. We can't judge. We don't know what your excuse is. But you judge yourselves whether or not you're following Jesus at a distance. And what ends up happening? He ends up denying Christ, doesn't he, when he's pressed on it. I would encourage everybody to be back here, to not use this media ministry as an excuse for sloth and following Jesus at a difference. So they go into the courtyard of the high priest here. Caiaphas's house was likely connected to his son-in-law Annas's. There's a large courtyard there. Uh, and it has a scene here where the officers, they had gone and arrested Jesus. They take him into the court, and then it's cold at night. So they're sitting there warming themselves by the fire. And then, so Peter comes up. He sees this fire. He's cold. And uh, he's not as cold as Mark, who's running through the graveyard still uh, naked. Uh, but uh, he comes up and he sits beside these guys and he's kind of trying to sort of get in there and warm his hands a little bit and kind of be a part of this little group and trying to fit in. How awkward was that? I mean, here are these people that have just uh, arrested the Savior who may have seen Jesus there, I mean, uh, uh, Peter there in the garden and everything. And he's coming up and he's trying to kind of blend in and being uh, one of them. So Peter has, as one commentator says, forsaken a discipleship of costly following to one of safe observation. Now we see here the false testimonies. We begin the court here in verses 55 through uh, 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and yet their testimony was not consistent. And some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build up another made without hands. And not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. So there's no thought here that justice is blind here. They are literally throwing, throwing together these false witnesses that had to be woken up at 1 in the morning and to come throw their lies together. They didn't have time to really cooperate on this, uh, and, uh, and they, they couldn't find anything to really accuse Jesus of. And, and you know, these people have been spying on Jesus for three years. And here was the big event, the big opportunity that Caiaphas and some of the others have been looking for, and they couldn't pull the, the testimony together. They weren't not finding anything uh, to, to, to be able to accuse them. Of course, Jewish law demanded that two collaborating witnesses had to, uh, to give the same statements here and agree on their testimony. Uh, but it's so, so much like our day, when in doubt, make up the facts. And that's what they were doing. They couldn't get the truth out. There was no truth. Jesus was an innocent man. So they decided to pull something together here. 
And they come up with this idea about destroying the temple here, which, is, uh, which actually was a statement Jesus made three years earlier. You see this in John chapter 2, where he talks about the, uh, the, the, the temple being torn down, but he was talking about the temple of his body, which is going to be the first day here when that process uh, starts. And they, they, they kind of got all confused even about the facts of that particular time together. But he even said, even in this respect, their testimony was inconsistent. So e- even when cheating, they couldn't get it right. How many times have we seen that in our day, right? Even when you're cheating, you can't get it right. Now we see here the illegal interrogation of verses uh, 60 through uh, 63. And the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you make no answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heavens. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? Well, these witnesses are terribly inconvenient. Let's just get rid of them here. So the high priest comes in. This is all too illegal. The high priest is supposed to be the judge. The judge doesn't come down and start interrogating uh, a, a defendant. So the high priest, he starts going over this, and, and then what is the response? You love this. I mean, it would be hard to sit there and watch all these lies going on, wouldn't it, if it were you? Don't, we're so quick to want to defend ourselves. What's Jesus' response? He is silent. He is silent. He's not going to dignify these lies by addressing each one of them. But really, this is in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. And he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. So they couldn't get anywhere with that because Jesus wouldn't cooperate so they could trip him up on his words. So finally, the priest says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, when Blessed One, they're replacing the word God so they don't accidentally blaspheme God. Isn't that interesting? Here's the high priest afraid to use the word Yahweh because they might mispronounce it and somehow take the Lord's name in vain. And he's about to, uh, and, he's, and he's putting the Son of God on trial and about to uh, have him killed here. But notice this, Jesus does speak up. All those years of silence, if you've gone through the gospel accounts, you know, whenever he would come across him, he'd heal a leper, he'd do something else, and people would recognize who he was, he would say, keep it quiet, keep it quiet. He had had to have a veiled ministry. He could not reveal, but only to a few, that he was actually the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But all of that silence was no longer necessary. He stood before the high court of the land, and he said, I am, I am. I am He. I am the Messiah. I am the one that was promised long ago. I no longer have to veil this. My time has come. It was for this purpose that I've come. I have set my face like Jerusalem for this hour and for the crucifixion and for the resurrection that is to come. I am He. I am the one. And then He goes on and says, You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds in heaven. This is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7 and, and Psalm 110. He's basically saying, I am the Son of Man. He is fully divine. He is an exalted figure. He affirms his sonship. He affirms his deity. There is nothing ambiguous about this. I am. He's not hiding anything. He has spoken. 
It's interesting, though. What does Jesus say? I am, and I'm going to be the one coming in the clouds. When I was figuring out the title for the sermon, you'll notice it's just the trial. Uh, I was going to say the trial of Jesus, but the more I started thinking about it, really this is the trial of the Sanhedrin, right? They are putting themselves on trial. And Jesus says, Caiaphas, I am the great judge of all. Everything you have ever done, every word you've ever said, every sin you've ever committed is going to be displayed for all the world to see before the Son of Man who is going to come in the clouds. You, Caiaphas, are on trial. I'm an innocent man. You, Caiaphas, are not. And he makes that known. Caiaphas doesn't realize it, I don't think. He, kind of, he goes through some shenanigans here. Um, uh, he tears his clothes there's some question whether the high priest actually had a right to be able to chair his clothes, uh, but he's losing whatever composure or restraint that he would have had at this point in time. But actually, as I see him tearing his clothes, you can kind of see this. Jesus says, I am, and you're going to see the Son of Man. You can just see Caiaphas tearing his clothes. You know, what more must we hear? I, I, I think it's feigned outrage. I think this is just, this is drama. You know, this is, this is Kobe Bryant laying on the basketball floor. He hit me. You know, I mean, this is, you're, this is exactly what this is. And he's just, he is, he's just outraged at this terrible blasphemy. And inside he's going, got him. I got him. He's gone and claimed to be Messiah right in front of everybody. And one of all these witnesses, he blew it. We're going to have this man killed so I can keep getting all the proceeds from the Romans and uh, from the temple concessions and I don't have to worry about this guy being a pest anymore but they hated Jesus so much it didn't matter what he did his theatrics uh, seemed to play into that and he says here what further need do we have of witnesses well that was convenient too because they didn't have any right so let's just be done with this trial let's just go ahead Jesus's response is self-evident they have been waiting for this he has made a confession of deity let's have him killed then we see here the unwarranted sentence in verse 64 through 65 you have heard the blasphemy how does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, prophesy, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. So they accuse him of blasphemy. That's the thing they're going to find him Guilty of? Now, uh, guess what? Jesus is not guilty of blasphemy. Why is Jesus actually not guilty of blasphemy? Because he is God. <laughs> He's the only one that actually could get away with that. He really is God. He is the Son of Man. He is going to come back in the clouds. Everything you said here is true. So again, we see the sinless life of Jesus Christ. They couldn't find anything, even observing, even following him. Even having uh, the spies going out, they couldn't figure out anything to get him on, so they're going to hook him on his own words, but his words were true. And they condemned him deserving death. And again, uh, they were supposed to wait another night. They end up not doing that. Now notice that what is the, what is the trial here? What is the, the sentence as a result of? It's a result of blasphemy. Now fast forward a little bit. Spoiler alert, we're going to look at him standing before Pilate and that kind of thing. When they come to the Romans, do they come to the Romans by saying, this man is blasphemous? No, because the Romans wouldn't care, right? Ah, if he's a god, just throw him up there with all the other gods. We've got room in our pantheon, don't worry about it. No, no, they had to come up with something else. 
So they accuse him of claiming to be a king, to be a rebel. He wants to overthrow Rome. You better get rid of this guy. He's going to be trouble. So they, even though this trial was a kangaroo court and the, and the sentence was all wrong, they, they can't even stick with this. They're going to have to come up with some other. They're going to trump up some other charges just to get the Romans uh, to be able to kill him. Luke chapter 23 says this, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying he himself is Christ and a king. They themselves saw that he said he did not forbid paying taxes to Caesar. And the mistreatment here is just so disturbing for us, isn't it? I mean, Jesus really is the Prince of Peace. And there were so many times he could have lashed out in vengeance and in anger, and he didn't. He just kept his cool, he kept his calm. And here is this kind, gentle, loving man who just showed grace upon grace upon grace, and they are beating him and mocking him and spitting on him and slapping him in the face. Again, why? Well, this is fulfillment of Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. It's interesting, Jesus predicted this in, all the way back in Mark chapter 10. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise again. Uh, You know, there are some of us who have some grave concerns about Congress, right? (laughs) The House of Representatives, the Senate, and the way they, they do things. But I cannot imagine a congressman or a senator spitting on somebody and slapping them and blindfold them there in the in the high courts of the land. These people have become animals. They're evil. They're demonically influenced because they have a perfect man before him and their jealousy has gotten the better of them. And then they say prophesy. Now remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in prophecy. They, didn't, they were the liberals of the day. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. So they're making fun of Jesus, but they're also making fun, as the liberals do, of people like you who do actually believe in prophecy and in things that are supernatural. It's interesting, Josephus, who is not necessarily a believer, a great general in the, the, the Jewish rebellion, records a similar trial in A.D. 62 where the high priest Annas convened a, a, a session like this of the Sanhedrin in order to secure the death of James, the brother of Jesus. So Jesus' brother actually went through the same kind of treatment uh, a few uh, decades later. Now we see here that Peter denies the Christ here in this, uh, this uh, emotional, uh, uh, emotional passage here from verses 66 through 72. And as we're reading this, one reason why this is so troubling is we could kind of see ourselves doing this, right? If Peter could fail in this way, could we not also fail in this way? And as Peter was below in the courtyard, some, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You, too, were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went on to the porch, and the maid saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he was denying it. And a little while later, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you, too, are a Galilean. But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you were talking about. And immediately a cock crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
and he began to weep. So Mark now returns to Peter here. The, uh, he started off with Peter keeping at a distance. Now we see here the full denial of Jesus. This is probably happening uh, there uh, at about 2 or 3 uh, in the morning. And, and uh, you think about... Uh, you think about the, the, the contrast here where Jesus just had such dignity and, and such dignity in his silence here and how Peter just can't, just can't keep d- denying him enough. I think if he had had a fourth or fifth opportunity, he would have kept denying him. He, he was so concerned here about being associated with Jesus, being caught, being arrested, being abused, uh, that, that he's actually he's denying it to a slave girl. She had no authority over him. They weren't gonna take, he wasn't gonna, she wasn't going to take him to court. She was more curious than anything. And he couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle it. So, as Jesus' trial is going on upstairs, um, and as he's going through all of these situations, this starting to, to wrap up, you know, we kind of see here uh, 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 Peter just stumbling over himself in order to disown the very one uh, who he pledged his life to. So if you track where Peter has gone, first of all, he declared that even if the other disciples fail, he will not. Then he goes to the garden. He falls asleep three different times when Jesus told him to stay up in prayer. You wonder if he had stayed up in prayer. Would he have, in fact, stood with Jesus instead of denying him? Then he impetuously strikes a slave's ear with a sword, and Jesus goes and fixes that for him and puts and heals Malchus's ear. Then he follows Jesus at his distance, and you can almost predict what's going to happen next, can't you? He just compromised, compromised, compromised. He is faithful in the little things, is faithful also much. He is unfaithful in the little things, is unfaithful also in much. And he's just throwing out that unfaithfulness to where he's going to fail the big test. Even though he was told, if, if God said, you are going to gossip at 2.30 this afternoon, don't you think you would avoid gossiping at 2.30 this afternoon? So it's an unremarkable count for one who is uh, considered to be chief of all the apostles. And it's very serious, folks. It's very serious. This is why you can't afford to not do what Jesus says. This is why you can't afford to follow him at a distance. Mark chapter 8 says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory the glory of his Father with the holy angels here. Now, what's also interesting is the emotional effect here of this relationship between Jesus. Peter loved Jesus, folks. He's just caving. He's caving. But Mark, uh, Luke gives some additional insight that right at that time, right when he, uh, he, he made his uh, declaration that he didn't know the man, Luke chapter 22, verse 61 says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine the drama of that moment? Can you imagine what was going through Peter's heart at that moment? After he denied him, he turns around and he sees the gaze of the Christ, his best friend, his Lord, who he just denied. How that must have pierced his heart. And, of course, the guilt and the remorse and the shame all came upon him, and it said he began to weep. He began to weep. Which is actually a pretty good sign, isn't it? So on the one hand, Peter's here, denial here. We, we, we look at the Sanhedrin and we understand that there is, there is, we cannot look for justice in this world, but we must never fail to give it, as Oswald Chambers says. And we look here at the denier, the injustice of uh, Peter's 
denial. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a reminder of our own weakness, isn't it? How we could cave given the same situations. But you know, one of the wonders of grace, and if there, in Christianity, I mean, if we had to pick a word that would describe Christianity, it would be grace. We, we, don't, we don't get saved because we don't deny Christ. We don't deny Christ because of the grace we're under and the love that we have for Him. And as we see in the life of the Apostle Peter, as Romans uh, 5.20 says, when sin increases, grace increases all the more. And we know the rest of the story where Jesus restores Peter and makes him say, I love you three times, three times. And it's not a coincidence. <laughs> he fell asleep three times, he denied him three times, and he has to say, I love you more than these three different times. So that Peter that we're seeing in today's passage who failed some years later wrote in 1 Peter 5, all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another. One of the reasons why he got in trouble was his pride. I'll never fail you. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. This is the same Peter writer for Peter writing. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Same Peter, same Peter. One's a failing Peter, one's a restored apostle. But we, are, we are constantly seeing injustice. Uh, and, it's, it's, and it's on a scale I don't think any of us could have ever predicted. But folks, there is no reason to be burdened, overly burdened, and discouraged and depressed about it. This has always been the way things are. If you had the highest court of the Jewish nation that had a principle of justice do this to Jesus Christ, we can expect this kind of thing from American courts. But our hope is not in American courts. Go back in time, 1,500 years. Rome was the center of justice in the world. Rome in all of its glory. Rome was the capital of Christendom. And Rome was besieged by pagan tribes. Barbarism took over and immorality to a point where you had this jewel of Christianity in a dung heap of wickedness. And Benedict of Nursia saw this. And he said, I can't stop all of this pagan invasion. I can't uh, stop all this lewdness and all this evil. But what I can do is this. Though I cannot expect justice in Rome, I can not fail to give it. And he developed the rule of Benedict, a simple set of guidelines on what does it mean to be Christian. And he started a monastery. And the guidelines were so simple and so powerful that other monasteries started. And what happened is that rule of Benedict preserved traditional Christianity in a sewer of immorality and paganism. Benedict of Nursia saved Christianity. And it saved it with people like you who decided to not deny, to deny Jesus, Jesus and to give justice even when justice was not given and to believe in the principles of Jesus Christ, the principles of Scripture and biblical morality even at a time when it was mocked and laughed at. And as the future began to unfold, the work of that monk 
saves Christianity. That might be the calling of our church, to preserve good doctrine, good traditional Christianity in a sea of compromise so that future generations will know what we did here and will be able to benefit from true Christianity in the future. Lord, make it so. That would be a good calling, wouldn't it? Father, we do come before you just recognizing the, the times we live in. We wish they were so dissimilar from the times that we've read about today some 2,000 years ago, but they're the same times because we live in a fallen world. And I pray, God, that our hope and our joy would be in Jesus Christ, not in good court decisions and not in people being nice to us. I pray, God, that you would help us to be uncompromising in our faith, to not follow you from a distance, but to follow you closely hand-in-hand where no one could ever accuse us of not being a Christian. We thank you for our Lord who set the example. We thank you for the Lord who lives within us that gives us the power to keep that example. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name.